We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go. Episode 3 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. It is a glorious day if you are like me and a lifelong Bullets slash Wizards fan. Just when we think we know what our team is, just when we are ready to write off yet another Wizards season, they go out and do what they've done here. Five consecutive victories now, the latest of which... A dramatic, come-from-behind, overtime win at the mighty Los Angeles Lakers late on Monday night. It is incredible. The same team, the same Wizards team that you, like, wanted to strangle for so much of this season up until, like, I don't know, a week and a half ago, you're now welcoming with open arms. You want to give him a big hug? Bradley Beal, Russell Westbrook, Denny Avdia. Rui Hachimura, it's been amazing what this team has done over the last few weeks, and what a job by the Wiz last night. We will be getting into that shortly. We have a lot to talk about today, actually. This is a loaded pay-per-view caliber show in terms of top, in terms of topics. The Wizards, they pull off the big win at the Lakers. The Washington football team could be welcoming Jeff Bezos, Uncle Jeff billionaire Bezos to the ownership group. So there's that. There is the palace intrigue, the reveal that is Bruce Allen having apparently turned on Dan Snyder, question mark. It's not exactly clear how true this is, but if you go by some court documents that were revealed yesterday by front office sports, Brucey turned on Danny, which is something that I don't think most people who follow this thing ever thought. What happens? So we have that to chew on today. 
Is Washington going to be pursuing Curtis Samuel to beef up the receiving core? Is Washington now on the outside looking in when it comes to potentially trading for Sam Darnold? We'll get into the latest on the Darnold situation with the New York Jets on the show. And we will talk Nationals on today's show. Didn't get a chance to do that on the Monday pod. Uh, but the Nationals with an under-the-radar, I think, sneaky good move yesterday in bringing in this reliever, Jeremy Jeffress. You can email me. Gotten a ton of emails. The Al Galdi Podcast at Yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. And my God, have I been inundated with feedback from you people. And I appreciate every single item of that. And I tell you what was as popular as anything in terms of the feedback to the Monday show. The question of the cursing. Do you want cursing? Do you want profanity on this podcast? Do you want this to be a G-rated or PG-rated clean pod? Or do you want this to be a profanity pod? A foul-mouthed potty mouth pod? And it was actually very mixed in terms of the feedback I got. I'd say if there was a lean, it definitely was toward keeping the pod clean. I got this tweet from Ivan. Profanity, you don't need it, Al. A tweet from Murray in Saskatoon. We are huge in Saskatoon. I'm one vote for keeping your podcast PG, especially if swearing into a microphone doesn't feel natural for you. When people force swearing, I find it cringeworthy. I'm looking forward to your pod every morning already. Thank you, Marie. Raymond Dean on Twitter. As far as whether or not we want you to curse on your podcast, I say do you whatever you are comfortable with. But I did get people endorsing the cursing. Frank Banka on Twitter. Welcome back. Great first episode, Al. Thank you, Frank. And yes, I personally want a few (laughs) F-bombs. Nothing wrong with a little expletive every now and again to enhance your point. Keep up the good work. Andrew on Twitter. I would say drop an S or F-bomb every now and then. Don't have to work blue, but when the flow of conversation leads there, don't hold back like the Kevin Sheehan pod. The occasional drop makes it a bit more informal like you're talking with friends. So the debate rages on. I was thinking about this yesterday. What if like there's a compromise with the cursing? Like what if I only cursed in a different language? Like I'll just curse in Spanish or I'll curse in Italian, but never in English on this podcast. I don't know. We'll see. I I, I tend to lean toward not cursing. Uh, I haven't done that in the past, cursed when talking sports with you guys. And I feel like just to start it now, just because this is a podcast uh, format for what we're doing. I don't know. I just, it's, it's not, it's not me. It's not what I do. I mean, it's not to say that I never curse. I'm sure I do, but, uh, I don't know. I don't think you, you have to do it to make your points, but m- maybe we'll just kind of play it by ear. And if ever there's a moment that warrants it, maybe we cross that threshold. But for now, for now, I think we keep this, uh, family friendly in terms of the language on this show, but love all the feedback. Uh, you guys are awesome. It's great to have you on board with this thing. Uh, great first few episodes in terms of the reaction to it and, uh, keep it going, man. Keep the momentum rolling. Got this from Paderak on Twitter. He said, uh, one little thing, please. Once you make some cash out of this, can we do something about the intro music? Everything else, perfecto. Yes, I, I got a lot of feedback on the music too. So we are investigating all kinds of options with that. Oh, I got this from WFT fan. And this, uh, I was glad to hear. So WFT fan, a listener in Toronto, by the way, says, Al, I loved having the description where you show what you're talking about during the episode. Lots of people want to listen to you speak on certain topics, but then not have the time to listen to the whole thing every day. Yes, we are time stamping 
these bad boys. So when you go to download the pod from wherever you download your pods, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, whatever the case may be, we have a website too. Just go to my Twitter page, twitter.com slash Al Galdi. You can get the podcast that way. But yeah, we're timestamping these things. So you can see, okay, at this mark, he's talking about this. At that mark in the podcast, he's talking about that. You can pick and choose because, you know, I know a lot of people are into everything, but not everyone is into everything. And I get that. I take no offense to that. So if you want to pick and choose, it's like a buffet. Your DC sports buffet is the Al Galdi podcast. All right. Like I said, there's a lot to talk about on today's show. So talk about it now. We shall. The damn Washington Wizards. And how do we not begin our in-depth scientific DC sports conversation on this Tuesday without talking about what our Wizards did late on Monday night. While many of you were sleeping, while some of you were engaged in deviant acts, the Washington Wizards were in the midst of winning a fifth consecutive game, and they do so not by beating up on some patsy, not by fattening up on one of the dregs of the NBA, but by winning a game, an overtime game, at the reigning defending NBA champion, Los Angeles Lakers. The Wizards have won five straight for the first time in three years, January, February, 2018, and win number five in that run, a 127-124 overtime win at the Lakers. It's amazing, isn't it, the way sports can work, where you can look so bad for so long. I mean, the Wizards, remember, were 3-12 and to begin this season. The Wizards missed six consecutive games due to a COVID-19 outbreak, came out of that break and lost their first four games during that stretch. They were 3-12 and and they looked dead, okay? They had missed all kinds of guys in terms of injuries and absences. Thomas Bryant was lost for the season. At least we believe he's been lost for the season due to a partial tear of an ACL. Russell Westbrook wasn't playing in the second game of back-to-backs and really wasn't looking that great when he did play. Get triple doubles, but, you know, the shooting was off, way too many turnovers, Bradley Beal looked like he was trying to carry a fire truck on his back in terms of, you know, it was him and then really not that much else. Rui Hachimura missed time due to conjunctivitis. It was like anything that could go wrong was going wrong. And it sure felt, didn't it? Like Scott Brooks was fired coach coaching. Final season of his five-year, $35 million contract. It just did not feel like this thing was going in anything close to a positive direction. And yet since the 3-12 and start, the Wizards are eight and five. And of course, a huge chunk of that now is a five game winning streak and a five game winning streak that isn't just the result of like a softening in the schedule. You know, you beat the Lakers last night in Los Angeles. Your win prior to that was that win at Portland on Saturday night. The win before that was a win over Denver. And then the winning streak began with victories over Boston and Houston. I mean, that's a pretty good five game winning streak. Celtics, Rockets, Nuggets, Blazers, and now the Lakers. And it's the nature of these recent wins that's really amazing. This was, last night for the Wizards, a third consecutive bonkers game. Like, these games for the Wizards, if you take your fandom and just, like, put it off to the side for a moment, these games are wildly entertaining because so often, like, nothing makes sense. And just because the game looks like it's trending one way doesn't mean it's going to end up resulting in anything close to that way. The Wizards last night overcome a 17-point third-quarter deficit. The Wizards were down in this game and then erupted for a 
24 run. The Wizards outscored the Lakers by 25 points during a stretch that started in the third quarter, went into the fourth quarter. So you went from being down by 17 in the third at 70-53 to leading in the fourth at 102-94. The Wizards proceeded to blow (laughs) that eight-point fourth quarter lead, which they had with less than five minutes left in regulation. So you overcome down 17 in the third quarter, you're up by eight in the fourth quarter with less than five minutes to go, and you blow that. You know, the conversation this morning could be a lot different in terms of the game at the Lakers if the Wizards don't end up pulling this thing off in overtime. But this is another instance of the Wizards overcoming a major deficit. The win over the Denver Nuggets last Wednesday night. Wiz in that game overcame a 20-point first quarter deficit. The win at Portland this past Saturday night. The Wizards in that game overcame a 14-point second quarter deficit. Remember that game too, the Wizards gave up 43 first quarter points, 37 third quarter points, and yet still ended up coming out with the win. And one of the reasons for that in that game of the Blazers on Saturday night was that the Wizards did play some defense, just not throughout the game. But the Wizards in that game held Portland to 12 points in the second quarter, just 19 points in the fourth quarter. And that was one of the things about this win at the Lakers. Look, the Wizards are never going to be confused with an elite defensive team. The bad boys Pistons are Wizards or not, but they are capable of defense. And that's always been the thing that's driven me nuts about the Wizards being so bad defensively. Defense in basketball, I've always felt this way, it's like 80-90% effort. And that's not to say that there's no skill involved in defense, because of course there is. And if you're really undersized, it's going to be difficult to ever be anything close to a good defensive player. But so much of defense in basketball is effort, and also coaching too. Like you as a head coach have got to drill defense into your players. I think it's been one of the real weaknesses of Scott Brooks as Wizards head coach. But it's not like the Wizards are completely incapable of being halfway decent defensively. And sure enough, we're seeing that here uh, during this five-game winning streak. Again, it's not like the Wizards are dominant defensively. They're not. Again, they gave up 43 points to the Blazers in the first quarter on Saturday night. But like you look at this game at the Lakers, the Wizards held Los Angeles to just 15 of 44 on threes. That's good. You know, you're holding the team to basically making about a third of its three-point tries. In today's NBA, that's good. Uh, In overtime, the Wizards held the Lakers to just three of 10 shooting, including one of five on threes. The Wizards for the game forced the Lakers to commit 20 turnovers. So that was good. Uh, the Wizards, all things considered, did a pretty good job on LeBron James on Monday night. Now, he finished with some big numbers. He actually almost had a triple-double, so it's all relative with old Bron Bron. Uh, 31 points, 13 assists, 9 rebounds. But the Wizards held LeBron to just 2 of 10 on threes, and he committed 8 turnovers. I think you sign up for that. If you're facing LeBron, two of 10 on threes, eight turnovers. Yeah. I mean, he's going to get his numbers, but if you can hold him to having like an, an inefficient night, which is what the Wizards did, that's a win. And the Wizards did that. You know, they did a good job on Kyle Kuzma, four of 11 for him on threes. You don't need the defense to be outstanding. You just need it to be good enough. You need to communicate. You need to hustle. You need to put hands in faces. You need to contest shots. And the Wizards are doing a better job of those things in recent games. And when it comes to the Wizards offensively, we talked about this on Monday's podcast, you know, one of the weaknesses for the Wizards this season has been their three-point shooting. They've not been a very good three-point shooting team. And sure enough, they really weren't in this game of the Lakers, just nine to 25 on threes. But what the Wizards are doing well is they're making their twos. Wizards last night, 38 for 71 on twos, outscored the Lakers in the paint by 16, 66-50. And 
the Wizards did a great job of getting to the free throw line. This game was at Staples Center, and yet the Wizards nearly doubled up the Lakers in terms of free throw attempts. The Wizards went 24 of 33 on free throws. The Lakers went 11 of 17 on free throws. So 33 free throw attempts for the Wiz as compared to 17 for the Lakers. You have score the Lakers at the line by 13 in an overtime game that you end up winning by three. Being plus 13 at the free throw line makes a big difference, obviously. And the Wizards did end up doing that. In terms, though, of the individuals last night, I think what you love more than anything is that the Wizards' two biggest stars came through. Your big money players provided big money production. Your two max contract guys delivered max contract-like games. Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. If this Wizards season is going to end up being what we all thought it could be and should be, and that is the team being, you know, in, in that like five seed, six seed territory in the Eastern Conference. And maybe even better than that, but you know, you, you, you got to temper expectations, especially after a three and 12 start. But if this Wizards season is truly turning around and this Wizards team is truly going to be a playoff team. And like we discussed on Monday, the state of the lowly East, pretty much anyone can be a playoff team. But if that's going to happen for the Wiz, Beal and Westbrook have got to be good and they've got to come through. And they did that on Monday night. Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook in an overtime that the Wizards won 12-9 combined for 12 points. Each guy scored six points in that overtime. The two big guns delivered in the clutch on Monday night, and they were efficient too in that overtime. The combined 12 points came on a combined six of seven shooting for Beal for the game. Two of five on threes, 33 points, seven rebounds, six assists, did have five turnovers, but he also had three steals, and he was so good, Beal was, in overtime. Six points on three of three shooting, hit a nine-foot step-back jumper, hit a driving reverse layup that was a thing of beauty, and that almost was disastrous, because prior to the layup, he nearly lost the basketball. So it was almost another turnover for Beal in that spot, but he didn't lose the ball, and he ended up connecting on a highlight-worthy reverse layup uh, in the paint there. Just tremendous job by Beal, and then he hit a huge five-foot driving floater with the shot clock expiring with 42.4 seconds left in overtime. Beal was awesome in this game, and so too was Westbrook. And for Westbrook, and this is the key to him, don't shoot the three, stick to your mid-range game, stick to your driving to the basket game, and that's how you become an efficient shooter. And sure enough, Westbrook last night, 0-1 on threes, but 13-24 on twos. Keep the three-point tries to a minimum, stick with what you know and what you're good at, and you can avoid, you know, the, those typical Westbrook games where, yeah, he gets his points, but, you know, he does it on 5 of 18 shooting, that kind of a thing. 13 of 25 last night, you take that and you run with it from a Westbrook standpoint. Now, he did miss his free throws. He went to 6 of 12 on free throws, but 13 of 25 from the field, that's what you like to see. And Westbrook finished with 32 points, finished with 14 rebounds. He had 9 assists. And how about that? For, for, how about this for old Westbrook? Just two turnovers. You know, Westbrook has continued to turn the ball over during this stretch. Not last night, he didn't. Nine assists versus two turnovers. He had a huge cutting and one layup to put the Wizards up by three, 127-124 with 11.6 seconds left in overtime. Did then miss the free throw. Like I said, he missed too many free throws last night. But otherwise, Westbrook was great. Bradley Beal was great. And this is what we were supposed to see. Like, this is what we were excited about when the Wizards made that trade of John Wall. And remember. 
a first round pick to the Rockets for Westbrook. You know, we had the conversation a few weeks ago on radio and I asked this question of is the Westbrook wall trade already a disaster? Is this already something that the Wizards should regret? And in the moment, you kind of felt like, yeah, maybe they should, especially when you consider again, you attached a first round pick, albeit protected with wall to get Westbrook. Now, now how we feeling, right? You know, we got to let this thing evolve. Now it's like, well, we're starting to see Westbrook do as we know Westbrook can do. He was really good uh, in this game at the Lakers. So Beal good, Westbrook good. There were plenty of other Wizards though who deserve credit for this win. And we'll start with this guy, Denny Avdia. How about the job by Denny Avdia? So Avdia has been coming off the bench recently. This is actually an eighth straight game in which Avdia came off the bench. He was a staple as a starter earlier in the season. He's become a reserve since then. Now, you know, in the NBA, and I think most of you listening know this, right? It's not really about who starts. It's about who plays the most. Avdia comes off the bench. He's still playing plenty. And two guys who have been starting lately, Garrison Matthews and Mo Wagner, uh, they start, but they don't necessarily play a ton. Like Wagner last night played for 15 minutes, 15 seconds for the entire game. Matthews, 17 minutes, five seconds. Avdia comes off the bench and he was so good in the fourth quarter. Wizards win the fourth quarter, 35-29. Avdia in the fourth quarter, two for two on threes, including a massive 25-foot three from near the right corner off a great pass, by the way, from Westbrook to put the Wiz up by three, 114-111 with 51.7 seconds left. And uh, also for Avdia, eight points, five rebounds in that fourth quarter. He goes in the fourth quarter, two and two on threes, finishes with eight points and five boards in just the fourth quarter. And how about this about Avdia? He guarded LeBron James multiple times late in the game. I mean, Denny Avdia is not even of the legal drinking age in this country. He's a rookie and he's Ding up Bron Bron late in an overtime win at the Lakers. Uh, Avdia's got length. Avdia, and you know, this, this is not saying a ton because it's, you know, the Wizards, it's, it's kind of like saying, you know, who's the nicest guy in prison, but Avdia is one of those guys who you could say is maybe the Wizards best defender. You know, we, we talked about Rui Hachimura on Monday's podcast. Maybe he's the Wizards best defender and he may be, but another contender for that spot would be Avdia already. And it's saying a lot, right? That, you know, a rookie who's not even 21 is with you and maybe already your best defensive player, but Avdia did a really nice job on LeBron late in the game. Uh, finished Avdia did for the game, eight points, eight rebounds in 22 minutes, 32 seconds off the bench. So Avdia was very good. You know who else was good off the bench for a second straight game? Robin Lopez. Uh, Robin Lopez, good off the bench once again. He was very good in the win at Portland on Saturday night. And last night, Lopez, 13 points, five of eight shooting, two blocks, and another very good plus minus. I know plus minus can be a flawed stat, but the Wizards last night with Lopez on the court for his 30 minutes, one second of playing time as a reserve, plus 16 were the Wizards. That's that's a very healthy plus minus rating for Robin Lopez. You know, he's got size, he's got veteran savvy. He's not a great scorer, but he actually has been scoring over these last few games. And so uh, Lopez was a big time contributor last night. And Rui Hachimura was very good once again. You know, Hachimura, he's like a, he's a solid player. He's never spectacular, but he's reliable. He's dependable. 15.6 of eight shooting and six rebounds for Hachimura. Wizards do win again despite Davies Bertans not being great. You know, this is the, the thing about this five-game winning streak. If Bertans catches fire, who knows what the Wizards become capable of offensively. I mentioned it. The Wizards have not been a great three-point shooting team so far this year. A big reason for that has been Bertans being off. He was so good on threes last year, 
And so far this year, you know, off the $80 million contract to be resigned to the offseason, he just has not been very good. And he finishes just two of seven on threes last night. But to give Berton some credit, he did for a second straight game go two or three on threes in the fourth quarter. So deep into the game, what ends up being a road win, Bertans does come through in the clutch. Uh, finish though with just eight points off the bench. But the Wizards win again. There is good feeling. There are good vibes with our basketball team. Where is this going? It's still hard to say. How much belief should we have in the Wizards? I don't really know right now. I know this. It's a ton of fun. It's nice to see. It's much needed. And off this season looking like a complete debacle and off the team maybe teetering on potentially just being blown up, right? Because if 3-12 and 12 had become, say, you know, 4-22 and 22 or something like that, what's the point at that point in continuing to pursue anything with this current group of guys? And the idea of trading away Bradley Beal, I mean, that's been a thing for a while in terms of will the Wizards do it? Should they do it? You know, the body language from Beal had not been great. I think we all kind of felt like we don't want to trade Bradley, but if this thing is going nowhere, you got to trade Bradley because he's your most valuable asset by miles. We can we can shelve all those conversations for now. For now, it's about, yes, a playoff push and a five-game winning streak. And by the way, another game tonight, the Wizards at the Clippers late night at 10. All right, let's get to all that there is to get to when it comes to the Washington football team. And we will get to actual football stuff coming up in just a bit. But as you likely know by now, when it comes to our football team, there is the football and then there is the non-football. There is the on the field stuff and then there's the off the field stuff. And does it not always seem like there's a whole lot of off the field stuff to be discussing? AJ Perez of frontofficesports.com on Monday, reported of two significant items in the Washington football team's ongoing ownership turmoil, right? We have three major off-the-field scenarios with the football team that really got going last summer and have continued into this year. There is the name saga. There is the sexual harassment scandal, for which, by the way, we're still waiting on the findings of this Beth Wilkinson investigation. And there is the ownership turmoil. And in terms of the most significant of the three, and they're all very significant, but in terms of the one that will most impact football operations for years to come, it's the ownership turmoil that you want to be paying attention to. Dan Snyder feuding with his three minority owners, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. So, AJ Perez for an OfficeSports.com on Monday reports of two significant items in this ownership situation. The first item is this. It turns out that the attorney, or at least an attorney, for Jeff Bezos spoke with this Baltimore-based sports investment banking firm, Moog and Company, which had led the effort to sell the minority owner stakes in the team, i.e., Uncle Jeff, billionaire Bezos, the Amazon man, wants in on the Washington football team. The richest man on the planet, the richest man in the history of people, wants in on the Washington football team, per this report from frontofficesports.com. Now, if you've been following your Jeff Bezos news, this probably doesn't come as a shock. First of all, it's just a few weeks ago, right, that he announced that he's going to be stepping down as Amazon CEO by the end of 2021. 
It was last August that, per Forbes, Bezos became the first person ever to be worth $200 billion. I mean, you can't even say that with a straight face, that the, the extent to which he is filthy rich, it can never be overstated. But specific to Bezos becoming an NFL owner, this is something that's been kind of percolating. Bezos has been establishing ties to the Washington, D.C. area, right? He bought the Washington Post in 2013. He bought a 27,000-square-foot mansion in D.C. for $23 million in 2016 and then spent $12 million to renovate the darn thing. Bezos, of course, in 2017, right, tapped Arlington, Virginia as the site of Amazon's second headquarters. And there was a report a couple of years ago now, November 2019, from NFL insider Jason Lockenfour of CBS Sports, who, of course, used to cover the Washington football team for the Washington Post. And Lockenfour in this report said, point blank, Bezos has interest in purchasing an NFL team and, in fact, had spent considerable time around NFL owners, including Dan Snyder. Now, it's An odd dynamic, right? Because you have Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post, the very paper that broke the whole sexual harassment scandal, the very paper that for years has feuded with Dan Snyder and trashed Dan Snyder. I mean, the legendary wars of Lock and Fora when he covered the Post with the football team, Jason Reed when he worked at the Post with the football team. Now, more recently, right, what I just brought up, the Washington Post breaking story after story when it comes to this sexual harassment scandal, embarrassing Dan Snyder, embarrassing the organization. It has not been a warm and fuzzy and cozy relationship over the years between the Danny and the Washington Post. But, but you think about this from Dan Snyder's perspective, okay? So first of all, you'd be bringing in some real money in Jeff Bezos if he is your minority owner, okay? If he owns what Rothman, Shaw, and Smith own in total, which is about 40% of the team. So you'd have, I mean, obviously incredible wealth in Bezos being a part of your ownership group. Number two, who knows what this could mean in terms of the presentation and the marketing of your team? I mean, if you have as one of your principal owners, the guy who used to run Amazon, and obviously you're still going to have very much a good relationship with Amazon, who knows what that can mean in terms of streaming, in terms of content for your team, in terms of, you know, merchandise sales for your team, all kinds of possibilities with that. But there's also this, okay? If the owner of the Washington Post becomes an owner of your team, do you not think that that might help the way your team is covered and presented? And that's not to say that the reporters at the Post are a bunch of saps who are just going to do exactly what they're told by billionaire Bezos. But, but if you're Dan Snyder, Would it not maybe make some sense to have the Washington Post potentially, or at the very least, the guy who owns the Washington Post on your side and part of your camp? I don't think you can ignore that aspect of things if you're Dan Snyder. And I'll tell you this too. Dan Snyder's public approval rating, of course, has been as low as you can go in this area for years. I mean, you really could argue Dan Snyder may well be the single most unpopular DC sports figure ever. Like, honestly, who else has been more unpopular? Who has had a lower public approval rating over the years in terms of sports in the nation's capital 
than Dan Snyder. I mean, he is like universally despised. And, and, and I don't say that like just flippantly. Honestly, people don't like him as an owner at all. There's a reason he barely ever speaks publicly because he recognizes the way he's viewed. In addition to, I don't think he's entirely comfortable speaking publicly. But having a guy like Bezos, who, look, some people don't like Jeff Bezos. And, of course, a lot of politics are involved in this stuff these days, right? I mean, the Post is a very liberal newspaper. Bezos is a liberal person in terms of his politics. That's another interesting thing about this dynamic, right? We know Dan Snyder leans conservative. Dan Snyder was a Trump supporter. Bezos was anything but a Trump supporter. So, you know, not that they can't work together, but that would be kind of interesting, too, with those two in the same boat. But Jeff Bezos is a guy who, you know, he's out there a lot publicly. You know, he's the richest of the richy riches. It might help Dan Snyder in terms of boosting his public approval, you know, and certainly Bezos could be someone who could speak publicly. And if ownership needs to speak on some things and Danny still doesn't want to do it, Bezos can do it or Danny can do it with Bezos. You know, I've said this over the years, Dan Snyder has to have a binky. He always has to have a comfort blanket. And for years, it was Vinny Serrato. Then it became Bruce Allen. For a brief period of time, it was Alex Smith. More recently now, it's Ron Rivera and also to a lesser extent, Jason Wright. Maybe Jeff Bezos could become the Danny's new binky. But how about it? Bezos coming on board as a minority owner. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're saying, well, why stop at minority owner? Why can't Jeff Bezos become our new majority owner, get Danny out of town and get Uncle Jeff, get billionaire Bezos as our new guy? We make that trade. Who wouldn't make that trade? Danny out, Bezos in as the Washington football team's owner. Look, that's going to be dependent on one very simple thing, but it's, of course, a very massive thing. And that is Dan Snyder no longer being the Washington football team's majority owner. He has never shown any kind of inkling towards selling the team. I mentioned the Beth Wilkinson investigation. We don't know what that's going to reveal. We don't know what potential punishments, if any, could be coming from the NFL. I suppose you could say scorched earth. The findings are severe. The findings are worse than anyone could have ever imagined. Dan Snyder gets ousted as owner of the Washington football team. That is possible. You can't dismiss any possibility with this Wilkinson investigation, with this sexual harassment scandal, because there's just a lot we don't know. But the reporting all along when it's come to this has been that Dan Snyder is expected to remain as the owner of the team. Adam Schefter of ESPN reported that months ago. That doesn't mean that that can't change, but I kind of feel like we would have heard more rumblings of the Danny potentially being ousted as an owner the same way, say, Jerry Richardson was ousted as Carolina Panthers owner. So I don't know about you. I'm not counting on that happening I'm certainly not counting on Danny selling the team on his own. Like I said, he's never shown any sort of inkling toward doing that. But let's be honest, Bezos as minority owner could be a path to Bezos eventually becoming majority owner if something else comes up with the Danny. And at the very least, this is not healthy. Danny feuding with the three minority owners. Like we've talked in the past about Washington needing to be on the same page from a football standpoint and the front office needing to be in alignment with the coaching staff. And for far too long, that has not been the case. How about the fact that the ownership group is not in alignment? You don't even have all of your owners on the same page with how nasty this whole feud has become between Danny and the other three. Again, Rothman, Shaw, and Smith. So just to get that toxicity out Bing, bring Uncle Jeff on board, I think would be a very good thing. I don't know anyone who would be against Jeff Bezos coming on board as minority owner. 
And to whatever extent Bezos potentially replacing Dan Snyder could be a thing, why not? I mean, (laughs) who wouldn't make that trade? Whatever you think about Jeff Bezos' politics, who wouldn't make that trade? Danny out, Bezos in. That was a big time matzo ball that frontofficesports.com dropped on us on Monday that Jeff Bezos had spoken with this Baltimore-based sports investment banking firm, which was leading the effort to sell the minority owner stakes in the Washington football team. But like I said, that is only item number one in terms of the juicy items in this frontofficesports.com report. The other item was this, and this in a lot of ways was the jaw dropper. Because like I said, with the Bezos thing, you know, it's that's not completely just out of nowhere that Jeff Bezos would have an interest in buying an NFL team, especially Washington. But how about this? It turns out, apparently, that Bruce Allen turned on Dan Snyder. The two guys who for so long were two peas in a pod. The guy who, like I said, was Dan's binky, Dan's comfort blanket for a decade. Bruce Allen, December of 2009 to December of 2019. The reign of error, perhaps unlike any reign in Washington, D.C. sports history. Brucifer. It means you're close. El Presidente, the man who bungled the Kirk Cousins contract situation. The man who bungled trading away Trent Williams. The man who was so cheap when it came to free agency, we got the likes of Kendall Reyes and Jerron Johnson and David Bruton and Stacey McGee and Terrell McClain, and they all did nothing with our team. That guy, Brucey, who inexplicably was kept on board for a decade, that guy, it turns out, turned on Dan Snyder, turned heel on the Danny. We're winning off the field. And here's where this is coming from. So this Bezos intel that frontofficesports.com got, it got that from court documents in this Dan Snyder defamation lawsuit. Dan Snyder, as you may remember, this past August filed a defamation lawsuit accusing an online media company of accepting payment in exchange for publishing defamatory rumors. This is where this all came from with, remember the lead up to that initial Washington Post article on the sexual harassment scandal. We knew something was coming, but nobody knew exactly what that something was going to be. And in the days leading up to the publication of the article, which was July 16th, 2020, there were all kinds of rumors and all kinds of stuff swirling about what was going to be revealed. I mean, remember how outrageous some of this stuff was. There was a rumor that Danny was on a list of sexual offenders maintained by Jeffrey Epstein. So there were people saying that Danny's going to be brought up in the whole Jeffrey Epstein scandal. There was stuff out there, remember, about Dan Snyder having tried to bribe NFL officials. All kinds of crazy stuff. There was stuff out there about drug and sex parties that the Danny had partaken in. All kinds of wild stuff was out there. And nobody was like putting a name to it, but it was just kind of circulating, floating on the internet. Dan Snyder, weeks after the publication of the Post article, which ended up being damaging enough, right? 15 former Washington football team employees saying they'd been sexually harassed during their time with the team. But the article wasn't nearly as like sensational as the rumors were. Danny, a few weeks after the publication of the article, files this defamation lawsuit. And Danny in the lawsuit said that a news site, Media Entertainment Arts Worldwide, which has a parent company based in India, published stories that it knew were false and were designed to malign Dan Snyder. Now, one of the key aspects of this defamation lawsuit was that Dan, in a filing, 
charged that a disgruntled former employee helped to wage this campaign against him. And the disgruntled former employee, per Danny, uh, is Mary Ellen Blair, who worked for the team from 2013 to 2017 as an executive assistant in the front office. One of the other things that came out about Mary Ellen Blair was that she, and again, this is according to Dan's side of things, took money to help spread damaging information about Danny. Danny also said that Blair had a financial benefactor, and the implications in court documents is that this financial benefactor was none other than one of the minority owners, Dwight Shar. So this is where this whole ownership turmoil really started to get nasty. Danny essentially accusing Dwight Shar of being the money man behind these wild rumors against Dan Snyder. Anyway, the court documents in all of this that frontofficesports.com uncovered to get the Bezos stuff also included this fascinating nugget. This guy, John A. Moog, who was the Baltimore-based financial consultant hired by the minority owners to try to facilitate a trade, a, uh, a selling of their shares in the team. John A. Moog, per court documents, frontofficesports.com found, exchanged, it turns out, 87 phone calls with Bruce Allen. And per these documents, and again, this is Dan Snyder's side of things, the two over those calls, so Bruce Allen and this guy John Moog, talked for more than 22 hours, and the two also had exchanged text and email messages that per Team Dan Snyder proved that the two were, quote, focused on negative publicity directed at Snyder, end quote. So this is not frontofficesports.com saying that Bruce Allen turned on Snyder. This is frontofficesports.com saying that Snyder in court documents says that Bruce Allen turned on Dan Snyder. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Bruce Allen, the guy who again was Dan's binky, the guy who again inexplicably didn't just work in the high levels of Washington's front office for a decade but got promoted within those levels. Remember, Washington goes 3-13 and in 2013, the disastrous final season for Mike Shanahan as Washington head coach. It's not just that Bruce Allen wasn't fired after that. It's that he got promoted. He got promoted to team president. Only Brucey, only a a politician like Brucey could orchestrate a promotion after a debacle of a 3-13 and season. That same Bruce Allen, according to Snyder, turned on Snyder and was a part of this defamation campaign against Danny. We don't know why. We don't know where this turned. I mean, Bruce Allen for years has had the reputation of being a politician. And so, you know, the side he's on is the side that he feels like is going to give him the most power. It's, It's not about personal loyalty. It's about doing what's best for Brucey. So it's not necessarily a stunner that Bruce would do this if you know Bruce's history or at the very least the way Bruce is viewed. But the fact that Bruce turned heel on Danny and Danny is saying this is just, I think, such an interesting part of all of this. And it does help to explain. It does help to explain, remember, the way Dan Snyder talked about Bruce Allen in his dying days with the Washington football team. Remember, 2019 season, in that disastrous season, Bruce was on the outs and Alex Smith was on the rise. Alex became Dan's new binky in that 2019 season, right? It would be Alex who we would see constantly with Danny, not Brucey. And when Dan Snyder 
announced the hiring of Ron Rivera, remember what Dan said very clearly, very explicitly. It was time for a culture change, a direct shot at what Bruce Allen had said just a few months earlier when he said that the culture was damn good. So there were signs late in 2019 that a divide had developed between Dan and Bruce. And obviously Dan fired Bruce, so like that's the ultimate sign of the divide. But the idea that Bruce turned on Danny, that Bruce is apparently a part of this defamation campaign against Dan Snyder. Again, according to Dan, a fascinating turn of events when it comes to the ownership situation. So that's the latest when it comes to our Washington football team from an off-the-field standpoint. When it comes to the actual football, though, a lot of stuff to chew on in terms of what has come out over the last 24 hours or so. So we, of course, have this new-look Washington football team front office. Marty Herney is the executive vice president of football slash player personnel. Martin Mayhew is the general manager. And Chris Polian is the director of pro personnel. I never got a chance to really talk about the Polian hiring. We, We spoke at length on radio about Herney and Mayhew coming on board. Chris Polian was the Jacksonville Jaguars director of pro personnel For seven years, 2013 to 2019, it was a mixed run to be sure in terms of what the Jags did during that time. But Chris Polian was a part of a Jags front office that in the 2017 offseason had one of the best offseasons you'll ever have when it comes to building up a defense. The Jags that offseason signed edge rusher Calais Campbell, a.k.a. Calais Campbell if you're Jay Gruden. Uh, signed defensive tackle Malik Jackson, signed corner A.J. Bouye, signed safety Barry Church. And the Jags ended up, what, having an outstanding defense in 2017, during which the Jags made the AFC Championship game, right? That 2017 season, that Jacksonville defense was outstanding. Now, Chris Polian also was with the Indianapolis Colts for a decade plus, 1998 to 2011. He was a Colts vice president and general manager from 2009 to 2011. It's hard to know with certainty when it comes to the Colts days, how much of that was Chris versus how much of that was his dad? His dad is the Pro Football Hall of Famer, Bill Polian. All right, Bill Polian is one of the best executives in NFL history, uh, even though he did think that Lamar Jackson should be a receiver and not a quarterback. But, I mean, the Colts over the Polian's 14 seasons with the team were outstanding. I mean, that was the Peyton Manning era, 10 playoff appearances, seven consecutive 12-win seasons, two AFC championships, and a Super Bowl. So I can't sit here and say Chris Polian built up those Colts. You know, that's not right to say, but he was a part of a Colts operation that was exemplary during that time there. And so what Washington obviously has done here is bring on board not one, not two, but three people with general manager experience in Herney, Mayhew, and Polian. Uh, there's also been some other stuff in the front office too, right? Washington promoted this guy, Eric Stokes, to senior director of player personnel. That got announced during that introductory Zoom presser for Herney and Mayhew. Anyway, with all that as a backdrop, Albert Breer, NFL insider for the MMQB in a piece that was published on Monday, wrote about Washington's new look front office, including three former GMs. And again, Herney, Mayhew, and Polian. And there were a few things in Breer's writing that I thought would be worth talking about here. So number one, I thought Breer raised a very interesting notion And that is this, that Washington has perhaps found a market inefficiency in bringing on board all of these guys with general manager experience. And the phrase market inefficiency has gained a lot of steam in sports over the last, you know, 20 years or so. It it comes from Moneyball. It, It comes from 
what Billy Bean was doing with the Oakland A's years ago. The, the, the famous 2003 book Moneyball, which is near and dear to my heart, people have sort of misrepresented what that is about. It, it's not so much about analytics, although a lot of it is, you know, encompassing of analytics. It, it's really at its core about market inefficiencies. And basically, when everyone else is zigging, you should be zagging. And you need to identify that which is undervalued and exploit that because that's how you can really make gains in the competitive environment that is professional sports. That at its core is what Moneyball was about. Baseball teams for years undervalued things like on base percentage and slugging percentage and overvalued things like batting average and saves. And Billy Bean recognized that and exploited that. And that's what Moneyball ended up truly being about. So anyway, Albert Breer writes the following. That Washington has, quote, prayed on that no second chances for fired GMs dynamic and maybe, just maybe, found a market inefficiency in rebuilding the personnel operation. This is not usually how scouting departments are built. Normally, a new GM is hired and younger guys connected to him come along with promotions. In this case, Washington has collected people who've been in these roles before and bring an ability to lean back on those experiences, end quote. It is different. There's no doubt about that. Normally, it is like, okay, you hire a guy, the guy, to run your front office, and then beneath him are all of the underlings and the slappies who are there to serve at the behest of the lord of player personnel in your organization. Washington is not doing it that way. First of all, it's a coach-centric approach. It's not a setup where there's the GM or the team president and then the head coach. It's no, the head coach is above all these guys. And it was said explicitly in the press releases announcing the hirings of Herney and Mayhew. Those guys report directly to Ron Rivera. All right. So, you know, Ron Rivera, we all know this by now. His title is only head coach. He is obviously a lot more than head coach. His title might as well be team president and head coach. So you have a, a setup that is different in that way, coach centric. But it's also a setup here where is Herney the top guy after Ron Rivera? Is Mayhew the top guy after Ron Rivera? Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. And they have been presented at least publicly as equals. You know, the, the titles are odd, right? I mean, Mayhew's general manager, that's not odd. But Marty Herney's title, again, executive vice president of football slash player personnel. Is that higher than GM or lower than GM? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. So they're being presented as equals. Chris Polian clearly is beneath them as director of pro personnel. Remember, you also have your salary cap guy in Rob Rogers. He's a big part of this entire operation. You've got a lot of experienced hands in the Washington football team front office. That can be an excellent thing. Guys with decades of experience, guys who can relay, hey, I went through this, I learned that, I know this guy, you know that guy, you know, we can maybe figure something out because of those relationships. It's also, though, obviously something that can go wrong, right? That when you have too many chefs in the kitchen, you have too many guys who think they know what should be doing, it is imperative, clearly, that everyone be on the same page and that egos don't become a problem. To that end, Albert Breer, who, for this writing, talked to some of the principal people involved, gave us the following from Martin Mayhew, quote, one thing that I've learned is we have to be fully aligned and fully on the same page. That's not just coaches in the personnel department. I'm talking about the players have to be fully bought in. Ownership has to be fully bought in. And I saw that firsthand in San Francisco in 2019, the way that season went, 
and also the start of this past season. Obviously, it didn't go the way we wanted, but the alignment was definitely there, and everybody was on board. Everybody was doing their part in moving toward that common goal. You really can't say that about the entire time that I was in Detroit. There were fits and starts, times when things worked well, and we were all communicating well, and things were moving in the right direction, but it wasn't consistent enough. End quote. So that was interesting on a couple of levels. Number one, Mayhew had a very mixed run as Lions general manager. He definitely did do some very good things. And the Lions did have a couple of double-digit victory seasons with Mayhew as GM. But there also was a lot of losing. Lions have been a very bad organization for a really long time. And I think what you heard in that quote there was Mayhew trying to explain some of what went down of, yeah, I know the overall results weren't spectacular, but you got to understand what I was dealing with. But you also have with Mayhew there very clearly presenting an argument for, and I don't think anybody would argue against this, organizational alignment, everyone being on the same page. You know, it's funny. We just talked about Bruce Allen turning heel on Dan Snyder. It's been one snake in the grass-like maneuver after another over the years when it comes to the Washington football team's front office. And this has been as big of a problem as anything over the years. The reality, the phenomenon of everyone not being on the same page. Washington over the years has had countless feuds when it comes to people who are supposed to be on the same team going in the same direction. Too much of the Dan Snyder era has been filled with a lack of organizational alignment. You know, Vinny Serrato versus Steve Spurrier was a thing. Vinny Serrato versus Jim Zorn was a thing. Dan Snyder versus Mike Shanahan became a thing. Bruce Allen versus Scott McLuhan became a thing. Bruce Allen versus Jay Gruden became a thing. Jay Gruden versus Bill Callahan was a thing. On and on we can go. People who are supposed to be on the same side ultimately end up feuding with each other, turning on each other. You can't have that. It's not healthy. It's a recipe for disaster. So that's what you need to avoid. And that's what hopefully you will avoid. And all these people have very good reputations in terms of them as people. Martin Mayhew, people love. Marty Herney, people love. Ron Rivera, people love. So hopefully you've got now adults in charge. You've got adults working together. And it's not to say that they can't disagree because of course they can. But the idea is that everyone be ultimately with the same common goal. And, you know, you don't have people shifting into self-preservation mode and trying to save their jobs on a sinking ship. One more thing from Breer regarding the Washington football team's front office. Breer also had this interesting nugget, and that is this, that Ron Rivera's coaching staff is to soon begin, quote, presentations for the new scouting department with plans to detail the schemes and spell out prototypes for every position, something that also highlights how early in the process of melding the operation together Washington really is end quote. So that's interesting that you, even with these hirings of Herney and Mayhew, which were weeks ago now, haven't had the coaching staff present to Herney and Mayhew, hey, this is kind of where we're at. This is what we think. This is what we feel like we should be looking for. So it's kind of like, hey, you know, it is draft season and free agency does begin in just a few weeks here. We, We probably want to get that underway. But I think that's so key too. There are so many ways to do football. And I think what matters so much is, again, coaching staff, front office, on the same page. I'll never forget Jay Gruden's season-ending press conference a few years ago where he said, it was a cry for help, we need everyone to be on the same page more. That's not been the case here for way too long. The coaching staff needs to be 
in alignment with the front office and vice versa, where the front office is searching for players who fit what the coaching staff wants to do. And the coaching staff is aware of what the front office is trying to do. And again, it's not that they can't disagree because it's healthy to disagree, but you can't have people cutting off other people, undercutting other people, you know, ripping other people behind the scenes, working to lessen the power of people behind the scenes. You can't have that. That stuff has got to stop. And hopefully it has stopped. In terms of the offseason for the Washington football team and potential additions to the Washington football team. So Albert Breer in this MMQB piece published on Monday also had this regarding the Washington football team. He wrote about Washington potentially pursuing unrestricted free agent to be Curtis Samuel, the Carolina Panthers receiver, called him, quote, a name to watch, end quote, regarding Washington in free agency. Washington potentially pursuing Curtis Samuel is not new. It's an obvious thing to wonder about given that Samuel played for Ron Rivera and Scott Turner. And if you want to drill even deeper, this guy, Jim Hostler, who got promoted to Washington senior offensive assistant a few weeks ago uh, in Carolina, right? I mean, uh, Curtis Samuel was drafted second round 2017. So he played for Ron Rivera for parts of three seasons, played for Scott Turner for parts of two seasons, and uh, was with this guy Hostler in 2019. For the record, for the record, I would love to see Washington sign Curtis Samuel. There's a lot to like when it comes to Curtis Samuel. First of all, he's young. You don't want to spend major free agent dollars on guys who are in their 30s if you don't have to. Curtis Samuel is going into just his age 25 season. So you'd be signing a guy in his mid-20s. You'll love that. Uh, Curtis Samuel, in addition to having connections to Rivera and Turner and Hostler, also is connected with Terry McLaurin. Curtis Samuel played collegiately at Ohio State, was part of the Buckeyes 2014 recruiting class that included Terry McLaurin. Now, I don't believe you just sign people because you know those people. I do believe this, though. When you spend major free agent dollars, right? When you're pushing across the table tens of millions of dollars to bring someone into your organization, you want to feel certainty. You want to have confidence that you're giving that money to someone who you can trust, who you are going to like, who's going to fit in well with your culture, who represents what you want to represent, who works hard, and who ultimately is going to be productive. Washington has plenty of people who know Curtis Samuel. They know him as a player. They know him as a person. So that to me is why this familiarity matters. You're not going to be pushing tens of millions of dollars across the table to an unknown. You know, it's not an Albert Hainsworth situation where it's like, you know, you're, you're Lottie Da and you're whistling past the graveyard and you've done like zero due diligence on the person you're bringing to your organization. You know this guy. All right. So if Washington does in fact heavily pursue Curtis Samuel, you're going to know that Washington is doing so with confidence, with, with real belief and faith that they're getting themselves a good player, a good teammate in trying to sign Curtis Samuel. Another thing with Curtis Samuel, he's coming off the best season of his career. So, I mean, yeah, you are buying high to an extent here, but that's okay. I mean, that shows that the guy is getting better. Curtis Samuel in 2020, 77 catches for 851 yards and three touchdowns on 97 targets over 15 games. That's a really good catch rate, by the way. 77 catches on just 97 targets. Another thing with Samuel, he offers one of those things that Ron Rivera loves, which is position flex. Remember last offseason, Ron Rivera sung the praises, especially at Cole Holcomb, because of the position flex that Cole Holcomb provides. And we've seen this in not just the words of Ron Rivera, but the actions of the team since Ron came here. Washington loves getting guys 
who can play a variety of positions or at the very least do a variety of things, right? Drafting Antonio Gibson, he can run with the football, he can catch the football. Signing J.D. McKissick, he can run with the football, he can catch the football. Some of the defensive acquisitions, you know, spending real free agent money last offseason on Kendall Fuller, who can play nickel corner, can play outside corner, can play some free safety, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. Curtis Samuel isn't just a pass catcher, he can be a ball carrier. Curtis Samuel over his four seasons, 72 carries, 478 yards, and five touchdowns. He's averaged 6.6 yards per carry. There is a Debo Samuel-like element to Curtis Samuel in terms of how he can help you when it comes to running the football. He is uber fast, Curtis Samuel is. 2017 combine, he ran a 4-3-140. For comparison's sake, do you know what Deshaun Jackson's 40 time was back in 2008 at that combine? 4.35. Curtis Samuel ran a faster 40 at his combine than the great Deshaun Jackson, Jackpot Jackson ran at his combine, to put that into perspective. Now, Curtis Samuel is not big. Uh, I don't really get that caught up in the size of receivers these days, but, you know, he's 5'11", buck 95, if you go by what the Panthers list him at. So, you know, you do have to make mention of that. Um, I mentioned his catch percentage this past year. He did not have a very good catch percentage over his first three seasons, 2017 to 2019. He, he caught just 55% of his targets over those three years. Now, that's not necessarily all on him, but that is worth mentioning. And sometimes a guy's a low catch percentage because he's being thrown the ball deep a ton. His yards per catch over those three years was just 11.4. So, you know, there there were some issues early in the career. I, I know he did have some drops. In the, the, the Panthers quarterback play hasn't necessarily been outstanding in all these years either. So you don't mention that. Um, he has dealt with some injuries, not been overly injured, but he did miss the final seven games of his 2017 rookie season due to a left ankle injury that required surgery. And he then missed the first three games of the 2018 season, reportedly due to needing to undergo a procedure to fix an irregular heartbeat. So you would have to make sure he's good with that. But again, you know this guy, you know, Rivera, Turner, Hostler, McLaurin. It's not just those guys. Ryan Vermillion, the Washington head athletic trainer, was with the Panthers for years. And when it comes to something like Curtis Samuel and his irregular heartbeat, reportedly, you would think a guy like Vermillion is going to know about that. Samuel, too, by the way, was used on kickoff returns for a couple of years by Carolina, 2017 to 2018. So he could help Washington in that regard. I don't think he's going to cost a ton of money. I mean, I think he's going to cost you real money. All right, you're not going to get him uh, on a uh, a David Bruton-like contract here. Coming off the best season of his career, like we said, he's young, he's fast. But this guy, I think, could help. And I do believe that nothing matters more when it comes to upgrading the Washington offense and upgrading the quarterback position. But it certainly doesn't hurt to upgrade your receiving core. And Curtis Samuel would certainly do that. We had the recent comments, right, from the uh, the San Francisco corner, Richard Sherman. He said on his podcast with Chris Collinsworth regarding Terry McLaurin, quote, if he had anybody else beside him and they couldn't just double him and cloud him all the time, he'd be special. But that's the hard thing. They can't find anybody else. They've got a bunch of guys who kind of flash, but he plays hard. He's one of the better up-and-coming wideouts in the league and quote, he is. And the fact that McLaurin has put up the numbers he has put up, you know, despite playing on these really bad offenses over his first two seasons, says so much about Terry. A guy like Curtis Samuel, I think would be a great compliment. I think Washington should pursue him. I think Washington will pursue him in free agency. All right, one more Washington football team item. And then I got some Nationals talk I want to get into with you. Sam Darnold, the quarterback quandary. The wandering in the quarterback wilderness that we've been in the midst of for decades here 
as Washington football team fans. So I gave you on Monday's podcast my five quarterback commandments for the Washington football team this 2021 offseason. And one of the commandments had to do with Sam Darnold and Marcus Mariota. And that is essentially don't just trade for them to trade for them. Trade for one because you believe in that one. You feel like there is real upside in that one. Don't just do something to do something. Well, if Washington or anyone else is going to be trading for Sam Darnold, it's starting to feel like that that may not happen for a while. Because we on Monday had not one but two reports that the Jets may well will be taking a while when it comes to what they end up doing with Sam Darnold. Uh, Albert Breer, again, in this piece for the MMQB yesterday, uh, he had this, reported that resolution regarding Darnold, quote, might not be for a little while, end quote, as the Jets are planning to assess the quarterback set to be available with that number two overall pick in the 2021 draft. And Ian Rappaport of NFL Media on Monday, he tweeted that per sources, the Jets are, quote, planning to complete their evaluations, end quote, of the top quarterbacks in the 2021 draft before making any decisions on Darnold. And those evaluations per Rappaport do include, you know, things like pro days and interviews. And Rappaport did, does add that the Jets have received real interest in Darnold. Uh, but Rappaport says, you know, this is probably going to take a while. In fact, Rappaport minutes after his initial tweet tweeted that this thing, quote, likely going to be a while, end quote, in terms of the Jets deciding on what they end up doing with Darnold. The Jets, by the way, should do this. They, they shouldn't just punt on Sam Darnold. He's not been very good so far in his career, but a lot of that may well not be on him. And so you should take your time and you shouldn't rush into things, especially when you have a number two overall pick. But that's the Jets' perspective on things. What I care about is the Washington football team's perspective on things. And I think this essentially is going to remove Darnold from the conversation because I don't get the sense that Washington is all uh, excited about waiting on Sam Darnold. You know, I think Washington probably wants to act sooner than what the Jets are doing here. And it sounds like Sam Darnold being dealt, that may not happen. First of all, it may not happen at all. But, you know, maybe it doesn't end up happening until right before the draft or even after the draft. Free agency, understand, starts in just a few weeks. So, like, what you're going to be doing, like, if you're going to sign a Ryan Fitzpatrick, like, that's got to happen in a few weeks. Uh, I don't get a sense that Fitzpatrick is just going to linger on the free agent market. Not that, you know, he's going to be some mega money guy, but teams move quickly. NFL free agency every year, it's like, it starts and then it's, it's essentially over like two days later. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a thrilling 48, 72 hour period, but then that's kind of it, you know? And yes, you can sign guys well beyond the start of free agency, but most of the big signings, the significant signings, certainly the major quarterback signings do happen early in free agency. I just don't get the feeling that Washington is that interested in waiting around uh, to say, well, we're not going to do this because Sam Darnold might be made available. Well, what if he isn't? What if he isn't? And when it comes to Darnold, and look, Washington, it has been said that Washington would have interest in Darnold. NFL media on February 7th said to expect Washington, quote, to weigh all quarterback options, including if Sam Darnold is made available, end quote. I think Washington should be open to anything. I think Washington should explore any option, every option this offseason when it comes to quarterback, because nothing matters more than that position. And Washington has got to get better quarterback play in 2021. But like I said on Monday, it's not like you're barren. It's not like the cupboard is completely bare. You do have two viable in-house options in Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. How viable they are is to be determined and can be debated. But it's not like you got nothing at quarterback and you got to do something this offseason. You should try to be better at quarterback. I do think that you need to part ways with Alex Smith, either via him retiring or cutting him. 
save the cap room and get somebody else in the mix. I, I don't want it to just be Allen and Heineke. I want a third option. I would prefer the draft, but we don't know what Washington thinks of this quarterback draft class. I am open to Darnold, but I don't know about you. I don't know how anyone could be in love with Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold has been brutal over his three seasons. And again, it's not all on him. The Jets have been a mess. Taco Wise and Adam Gase was a disaster as Jets head coach over two seasons. But I mean, you look at Darnold's numbers, 38 regular season games, 45 touchdown passes versus 39 picks. I mean, that's a terrible touchdown to interception ratio. Yards per pass attempt of 6.6, not good. Completion percentage of 59.8 in today's NFL. That's awful. Uh, his sack percentage is 7.4. That's not very good. And his total QBRs per ESPN, 45.9 in 2018, 45.6 in 2019, 40.1 in 2020. And he's had some injury issues. He missed three games his rookie season 2018 due to a foot injury. He missed four games his past season, two in October, two in November, due to a shoulder injury. He did miss the three games in 2019 due to mono. Uh, you know, it's not really an injury issue, but I mean, he did miss time in 2019. He's missed at least three games in each of his three seasons. So, you know, I, I, like if, if you feel like, well, no, there's potential here and he's been done dirty by a bad jet situation. Okay, fine. Uh, and if Ron Rivera and Scott Turner and Ken Zampezi and Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney feel that way, okay, fine. I mean, the good news with Donald is he's not going to cost you like a first round pick, but it's not like he's going to cost you a seventh rounder. You know, in theory, it would be maybe a second rounder, maybe a third rounder. You don't just want to give those away. If you feel like there's still talent and promise and he can be rehabbed, I'm not going to dismiss it, but I don't look at Sam Darnold and say to myself, oh, but that's a diamond in the rough there. I'm like, no, that may well be a bust. That may well be a bust. I'm not convinced at all that Sam Darnold would come here and be better than Kyle Allen or Taylor Heineke uh, if Allen and Heineke stay healthy. And that's an if with those guys, but it's also an if with Darnold. Just, Just like, by the way, it's also an if with Marcus Mariota. So we will continue to monitor any and every quarterback who is potentially available to our team but it sounds like right now, uh, Sam Darnold, if he's going to be available, it's not going to be for a while. We now move to the Washington Nationals. Spring training is underway. Pitchers and catchers have reported. Position players have been showing up. You have actual spring training games. They're going to be getting going, first of which is on Sunday. It'll be the Nationals and St. Louis Cardinals, a 105 first pitch in the Grapefruit League there down in Florida. I know it doesn't feel like it outside these days, although it is supposed to warm up here in the D.C. area over the next few days here, but baseball season is getting going, and as things stand right now, it's going to be a normal season in terms of spring training games and then the regular season games. You know, you're going to play 162, or at least that's the plan, and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll have some normalcy here with the baseball season in 2021. Obviously, you're not going to have full stands, but there is a feeling that you will have some teams having fans. And, you know, as the season goes on, hopefully you do get back to having people, you know, thousands of people in these ballparks. I know one of the ideas that's been floated, and we'll see if this can come to fruition, but maybe July 4th, uh, you can really start to open things up in terms of ballparks being filled with people. That would be kind of a nice, you know, symbolic restart to fans in earnest being back at Major League Parks. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, obviously, where uh, we go with the pandemic. But uh, baseball season is coming here, and that spring training is going on. And there are two things in particular I want to get into when it comes to the Nats with you here on today's show. So first of all, there was some Nats news on Monday. Uh, Dave Martinez confirming that the Nats have agreed with this guy, Jeremy Jeffress, on a minor league contract with an invite 
to Major League Spring Training. Jeremy Jeffress is a veteran reliever. He's going into his age 33 season. And Jeremy Jeffress is interesting because he is emblematic. He is symbolic of basically every reliever on the planet, with the exception of Mario Rivera, Mariano Rivera, and a few others. And that is, he is up and down. And when he's up, he's very up. And when he's down, he's very down. Jeremy Jeffress was very good for the Milwaukee Brewers and Texas Rangers in 2015 and 2016. But he has been herky-jerky Jekyll and Hyde ever since. 2017, he had a 468 ERA. 2018, he had a 129 ERA. 2019, he had a 502 ERA. And then last season, 2020, he had a 154 ERA. So his ERA has either been in the fours slash fives or in the ones over the last four years. He's either been great or he's been putrid. And that's how a lot of these relievers are. Uh, they are guys who, you know, they work 50, 60, 70 innings per season. And so it's not really that large of a sample. All of these relievers are flawed from a standpoint of if they were better, if they had a bunch of pitches that worked for them, they'd be starters. So, you know, most relievers are failed starters. And just a lot of these guys are kind of fickle and some years they're good and some years they're not good. That's why the rare bird that is the reliever who's good every year, you really want to hold on to because so many of these guys just kind of cross your fingers and close your eyes and hope that they end up being good. But I do think that this is a smart signing by the Nats. First of all, it's one of these, you know, low cost, nothing contracts. Again, minor league contract with an invite to big league spring training. Uh, Jeffress has been good, okay? I mean, two of the last three years, he's finished with an ERA below two. So, like, that's not nothing. You know, it is concerning. He's not necessarily a high strikeout guy. His strikeouts per nine innings in 2020 with the Chicago Cubs, a mere 6.6. These days, you want your relievers averaging more than a strikeout per inning. Uh, he obviously was not doing that, 6.6 strikeouts per nine innings. But he did have a 1.54 ERA over 23 in the third innings. And I tell you this about Jeffress, he's been outstanding throughout his career at avoiding giving up the home run. And you could argue that more than anything is what matters with relievers. Don't come in with runners on second and third and give up the three-run bomb. Jeremy Jeffress's home runs per nine innings over the last three years is a microscopic 0.7. And that also just happens to be his career home run rate. So he's been very good at keeping the ball down, avoiding giving up the bomb, and especially in today's, you know, swing for the fences environment, launch angle environment, home run happy environment. You have a reliever like this who can avoid giving up the home run, that matters. But I think that Jeremy Jeffress signing is a good springboard into a conversation about, well, where are we with the Nats bullpen? It's very easy to lose sight of this, right? Because the Nats, you know, they were not good in 2020 and their issues were many. The starting pitching was not good. The defense was abysmal. The offense beyond Juan Soto and Trey Turner had lots of issues. You obviously had some injury problems in 2020 as well. And oh, by the way, the bullpen was bad. Again, we've become so used to the Nats having a bad bullpen. There's almost like a Stockholm syndrome here where we kind of just accept it now that, yeah, you know, the bullpen isn't very good. No, we should not accept it. Like the bullpen should be a lot better. Never forget the Nats won the 2019 World Series in spite of their bullpen, not because of their bullpen. There's a reason Dave Martinez that October basically only used Sean Doolittle and Daniel Hudson in terms of relievers and leaned heavily upon starters as relievers, right? Remember Patrick Corbin as a reliever, October of 2019. Remember Steven Strasburg as a reliever, October of 2019. The Nats in 2020 were 23rd out of 30 major league teams in relief pitching ERA at 468. 
that's not good, okay? Like, that's not acceptable. That's not the way the thing should be. I do think that there is a path to the Nats having a good bullpen in 2021, but I have felt that way basically every year. Again, these relievers are fickle, so you can always kind of paint a glass half full picture on things, but you could also end up having a glass half empty reality, and the Nats too often have had that. I think Jeffress has a good shot at making the ball club, though, and I do like some of what the Nats do have going on in the bullpen. I love the signing of this guy, Brad Hand, the lefty. Uh, the Nats giving him a one-year contract, $10.5 million. Brad Hand is the rare reliever who has been very good season in and season out. He was terrific for Cleveland in 2020, a 2.05 ERA over 22 innings. And Brad Hand is a strikeouts guy, 11.9 strikeouts per nine innings. By the way, he led the majors in saves last year with 16, to whatever extent you want to value that. You know, Hand, he struggled with Miami in 2014 and 2015, but in five seasons since then, so you're talking 2016 through 2020, he's done very well. Did well with the Indians, has done well with the San Diego Padres too. 270 ERA over 320 innings over the last five years, and his strikeout rate over those five years, 12.2. So you got a, a guy, a lefty, by the way, who has been consistently good out of the pen for half a decade here. Uh, that's not nothing. There's a reason he got $10.5 million on a one-year contract. So I really like the signing of Brad Hand. He's a guy who has dominated lefty batters. And so that matters too, right? Sean Doolittle's gone. So you need someone who you feel like can shut it down against lefties. Brad Hand has been very good when it comes to that. So you have Brad Hand. You do still have Daniel Hudson. He had an awful 2020, a 6'10 ERA uh, he needs to be better, and we'll see. He, he did have a high strikeout rate last year, Hudson did, 12.2 Ks per nine, so that was good. So Hudson is still part of the mix. Tanner Rainey is the guy who most Nats fans are excited about in terms of relievers, and I think you have reason to be. Tanner Rainey is a reliever on the rise. He had a very good 2020 and a 14.2 strikeouts per nine innings. I, I think there's a really good chance Rainey ends up being your top reliever, your, your closer, you know, your ace reliever, your high leverage guy. Uh, Rainey, I think, has real potential here. And you know Mike Rizzo especially loves his swing and miss stuff that Rainey possesses. So you have Hand, you have Hudson, you have Rainey. Will Harris is still with the team going into his age 36 season. He had a mixed 2020. Uh, I think Kyle Finnegan is going to be a part of this bullpen. Uh, Finnegan had a good 2020. He's got some promise too. Not the way Rainey does, but Finnegan had an ERA under three last year. So uh, there's there are some things to build upon, I think, with him. And, you know, Wander Suero is a guy who I think will make the team he is one of these 50-50 guys. When he's on, he's good, and he can strike people out, but he also can have issues putting people on base. He had a mixed 2020. So we'll see. I mean, you, you can hear it guy, kind of going through these guys, pitcher by pitcher. Could be good. You know, maybe Hudson bounces back. Maybe we soon see more good than bad from the likes of Suero and Finnegan and Harris, but it could also unravel. You know, Daniel Hudson is going into his age 34 season, and it's not like he's been a consistent reliever. Some years he's been good, like 2019. Other years, he's been bad, like in 2020. So I'm not sure which Daniel Hudson we're going to end up seeing. But I am excited about Rainey. I love the signing of Brad Hand. And I think Jeremy Jeffress has got a shot. And hopefully, if you're the Nats, you can avoid what really has become a summertime tradition, unlike anything else when it comes to the Nats. And that is the in-season trade for bullpen help. Every year, it feels like Mike Rizzo has been compelled to have to make an in-season trade to try to beef up the bullpen, whether you're talking about Jonathan Papelbon or Sean Doolittle or Ryan Madsen or Mark Melanson or Kelvin Herrera, you know, on and on we can go. 
hopefully this year, what will hopefully be as normal of a year as possible, we do not have to have that normalcy, the the normalcy that is the annual in-season trade for bullpen help by Mike Rizzo. All right, one more item for you on this Tuesday, and that is this when it comes to the Nats. So the San Diego Padres mega extension with shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. became official on Monday. The Padres officially announcing the signing of Tatis to a 14-year contract extension through the 2034 season. I mean, think about that. 2034 is when this Tatis extension will expire. What will be going on in your life? What will be going on on this planet in the year 2034? Will we even still be in existence in 2034? But this, of course, broke last week that the Padres had agreed with Tatis on this mega extension, a 14-year, $340 million extension. Uh, it's an extension, by the way, that includes a no-trade clause, no opt-out clauses, and no deferred money. This is as committed as you can be. A 14-year deal, the player can't opt out, the team can't trade him without his approval, and this is not, you know, a learner specialty with a bunch of deferred money. This is, no, 14 years, $340 million. Here you go, and you ain't going nowhere for a while. Now, this is, of course, relevant to us as DC sports fans because of Juan Soto. Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis Jr., are essentially the same age. This upcoming season is set to be Tatis's age 22 season. It's also set to be Soto's age 22 season. Juan Soto this past offseason was first year arbitration eligible. So you got a ways to go until he becomes a free agent. He's not set to be a free agent until after the 2024 season. So you got years until you really truly have to worry about what will be happening with Juan Soto contractually. Uh, he got a one year $8.5 million deal Soto did this past January to avoid arbitration. But of course, you look at Soto and you say, well, we had Bryce Harper and he left. Although remember, I don't think the Nats were ever that wanting of him to stay. You had Anthony Rendon and he left. You have Trey Turner and we're not sure what's going to end up happening with him. I do think the Nats will end up re-signing him because he's not going to be one of these $300 million players, but you know, we'll see what happens with Trey. And you have Juan Soto. And there's no overstating the extent to which Juan Soto has been great. Juan Soto has been what Bryce Harper was supposed to be in terms of a phenom who hits like a Hall of Famer. You know, Harper was good, but never great. And he dealt with a lot of injury and he missed way too much time. And especially if you look at Harper through the prism of wins above replacement, he really was not the superstar that uh, people made him out to be. Juan Soto has been a superstar. Juan Soto in 2020 was legitimately the best hitter in baseball. Juan Soto in 2020 led the majors in basically every meaningful batting category. On-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, OPS plus. You know, I can get ultra geeky with Soto. Weighted runs created plus, weighted on base, offensive war, intentional walks. He led the National League, Soto did, in batting average. Basically, anything you can think of when it comes to measuring hitting, Juan Soto was the best in baseball at in 2020. His defense did take a step back. It's going to be interesting with Soto defensively in 2021 because he's shifting over to right field, which is a more premium defensive position than his left field. But Soto at the plate, ain't nobody got to be worrying about what he's going to be doing in that regard. Now, Tatis is spectacular. Tatis is more well-rounded than Soto. Tatis is a good defensive player. Tatis plays a more important defensive position in shortstop. And actually, there are some things you can look at that would suggest that Tatis is 
Soto is equal as a batter and maybe even better than Soto as a batter. Kind of depends on what you want to go by. But Tatis is a superstar. He is worthy of this extension. The question, of course, becomes, well, if the Padres can lock up Fernando Tatis, can the Nats lock up Juan Soto? The Nats have talked contract with Soto. Mike Rizzo has discussed this. The contract talks so far have gone nowhere. Juan Soto's agent is Scott Boris. We all know that Scott Boris loves to take his clients to free agency, hates to have his clients sign extensions prior to free agency. We also, though, do know that there is a major exception to that, and that is Steven Strasburg. Steven Strasburg, in May 2016, signed a contract extension with the Nationals in what was a contract season. And I will never forget the press conference for that contract extension and the look on Scott Boris's face, a look that spoke a thousand words. It was a look that reeked of, I can't believe one of my clients is doing this. I can't believe that I'm allowing one of my clients to do this. You could tell that Strassi signing that in-season extension in 2016 went against every fiber in the being of Scott Boris. But, you know, that's Strasburg. He is a different bird. And one of the things about Strasburg that makes him unique is that he is one of the few major Scott Boris clients to not go to free agency and to sign an in-season extension. Of course, Strasburg did go to free agency after 2019, and he ended up getting a $245 million deal. But the point is, I I don't think for a second that Scott Boris is advising Juan Soto to try to negotiate some kind of extension here. And so that puts incredible onus on the Nats of, with every passing year, it's going to become less and less likely that Juan Soto wants to sign an extension, assuming that he stays healthy, assuming that he stays uber productive. The onus on the team in a situation like this is very simple. You need to come and you need to come correct. And you cannot make one of these, you know, learner specialty offers where we're going to pay you a lot, but you know, you're going to get paid in 2097. Like, no, you got to pay him. You got to pay him legit. You got to make him an offer like what the Padres made to Tatis. Because I'm sure Tatis was like, I'm a superstar. I don't want to be locked up. And then the Padres said, how about 14 years? How about $340 million? How does that sound, Fernando? And you can have a no trade clause and you'll have no deferred money in the contract. You got to come correct. And I wonder with these talks that the Nats have had so far with Soto, what's been the nature in terms of the numbers that have been exchanged? Have any numbers been exchanged? What you need to do is you got to be aggressive. And that's that's the fault that teams make with these things. It, it, it was the biggest mistake the Orioles made with Manny Machado. They took way too long. They were asleep at the wheel in terms of trying to lock him up. They, they made no real attempt to lock him up. And then when he blossomed, it was like, yeah, he's as good as gone. And he was as good as gone when he ended up leaving them. And they ended up trading him. They traded him too late. And they got pennies on the dollar in terms of what they got back for him when they dealt him a few years ago. You don't ever want to be in that position with a superstar player. And the Nationals, especially having dealt with the Harper and Rendon situations, they've got experience with this now. Juan Soto, to me, is not going to be Harper. Juan Soto is going to be someone who legitimately you want to retain. If you want to lock him up, and players, by the way, will sign these extensions early in their careers. Obviously, Tatis just did it, but we've seen others do it too. Andrew McCutcheon did it years ago with Pittsburgh. Ronald Acuna did it more recently with Atlanta. Guys will agree to these contracts if you come to them correct. And it's funny with Acuna because the Braves actually gave him like a hundred million dollars and he, he, I, I think got, uh, way underpaid in terms of the extension that he ended up signing, but he signed it. He did do it. Tatis just did it. 
it's going to cost a ton of money. It's going to cost $300 plus million to do it. The Nats, I believe, can do it. But you got to come hard. You got to come aggressive. Are the Nats going to be willing to do that with Juan Soto? All right, lots of ground we had to cover on this Tuesday, but there was a ton to get into. So you tell me what you think at Al Galdi on Twitter, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. If you want to email me, thank you again for all the positive feedback, all of the support. Continue to subscribe, continue to rate and review, continue to spread the word. The Al Galdi podcast is a thing. You are not beholden to local sports talk radio. You have options. The Al Galdi podcast is an option. Lots to do the rest of the week. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.